Here we are, the final chapter of this wonderful book of 2 Corinthians. We've been treated to the, uh, an insight into the inner workings of uh, a church. We've seen them reach out to a brother who has repented of some serious sin. We've seen Paul open his heart and encourage them in compassion and his vision for the church. We've seen an appeal to a generous lifestyle of worship. And yet throughout all of this, there's still no such thing as a perfect church. I don't know if that comforts you or not. Uh, It certainly comforts me. But the interesting thing for me is that as I study 1st and 2nd Corinthians and I look at the issues, the problems that come from, from the church in Corinth comes from the church's leadership. It's a leadership problem. The power struggles and the vying for the center spot, all underpinned by inconsistent theology, means that the people in the pews, as it were, are being taught all sorts of different things. They're being led all sorts of different directions. They're a reflection on the leadership. But it's coming from the leadership, and I find that an interesting part of the study. But this is where we close the book. We, We don't know, as it were, from Scripture, what happens. Do they get rid of the false teachers? Do they, do they win the day? Or is it just this ongoing problem? These leaders who are coming in, they want the church in Greece to look like the church in Israel. And so they want the cultural changes to happen as well as the things that happen and change whenever you get saved. They want a cultural revolution, cultural uniformity in the church, which of course is not what the gospel is about. But they underline their arguments and highlight their credentials, letters after their name, letters of recommendation. And it's the craziest thing to us in 2019 because they're saying about Paul the apostle, the mighty Paul, Ah, we're not sure if you're the guy for the job. We're not sure if we would like you to be in charge of the church. Whereas I think if you had the chance now to say, here, listen, you've got Paul. We'd love to hear Paul's, but yes, we'd love to have Paul's input. Of course we would. But back then it was, mm, we're not so sure if he's the guy. And yet in this final chapter, he finds himself again having to defend his calling and his ministry from these arrogant pretenders. His problem is that he's too humble to to really do it himself. And that's where the problem comes from. People doubt his qualifications because he never talked about his qualifications. We don't have to ask about Paul's qualifications because history has proven that God was with him. But the people in his alive with Paul didn't have the benefit of that hindsight. One of my favorite verses in Scripture, just generally, it is Micah 6, verse 8. It's just a wonderful summary of what the Christian life is supposed to be. It says, here's what the Lord requires of you. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. To me, that just if you want to know what, what's required of you as a Christian, that's it. That's it. And it'll flow into everything else. And I think Paul lived out that verse in Micah. I think that this, when you look at Paul's life, that's what it looks like. 
to walk humbly before God. When you care more about what people think about God than what they think about you. When you're more interested in pointing people to God than pointing out what's going on in your own life. Paul's only interested in how he walks before God and what God sees. But now he's got to talk about himself and he's really reluctant to do it. Now, when we get to verse 10, it's a summary of the entire book, never mind the entire chapter. Verse 10 says, For this reason I write these things, while I am away from you, that when I come and may have, may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not tearing down. It says, I'm coming. I hope it's all sorted before I get there. I know we've been working through some stuff. I hope we're there but there's these final wee niggly things that we have to sort out. If I'm coming, I want to come in a good spirit. But if these aren't sorted, <laughs> I will sort it out. He says, I know it's awkward, but let's get rid of the troublemakers. Let's sort it out. And it's this kind of thing where Paul's not the sort to allow niggly things happen. He doesn't like niggly things. He'd rather say, look, it's been awkward, Let's make it a wee bit more awkward. Let's just sort it all out. Let's make sure we don't sweep stuff under the table. Let's make sure that we're not in the same mess in six months' time. Let's sort it out properly. And you have to respect the guy who wants to live out a life like that. There's nothing worse than niggly things. Sure, there's not. That, that you maybe have a fallout with someone. There, there's a, maybe a miscommunication or something. And... Is the worst thing in the world is that whenever that friendship is just never quite right again. Isn't that right? It's the worst feeling in the world. Paul is saying, we're going to sort out the niggly stuff. If that means another awkward conversation, then so be it. But let's not leave the niggly stuff lying about. In my head... This chapter is the strong finish. And I kind of imagine Paul sitting in the sort of the Wild West saloon and he puts the gun on the table and says, so are we good? Because if we're not, I'll make it good. That's, that's the idea. It's that kind of intimidation thing. Because it, it is almost an impossible thing that he's trying to do in these chapters. He's trying to talk about egotistical, selfish, proud leaders. He's trying to defend what he's doing and his role as a lead apostle in the church without sounding arrogant. So he's trying to tear them down, build himself up without making it look like he's puffing himself up and doing the thing that he's accusing these other people of doing. That's a difficult balance. And that's what he's trying to do, which is why over the chapters 11 and 12 and 13, he'll say, look, bear with me in my foolishness. Just put up with me just a little bit longer. I know I'm sounding so stupid, but just hear me out. And he's just constantly saying, look, I understand how weird this is, but you, you ask the question, I'm giving you the answer. Pride has a way of getting us into trouble. Society is in a place now where pride is uh, seen as a quality uh, rather than a flaw. Sell yourself, be positive, be assertive, put yourself out there. Take pride in what you do is certainly something that we all should do, but it almost pushes now into arrogance. Flaunt yourself. 
But Scripture constantly reminds us of the problems caused by pride. From Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit and the temptation that Satan used to get them there. Pride caused Saul to, to, uh, to go into battle and be defeated and it cost him his life and it cost Jonathan his life. Pride led Nebuchadnezzar to an animal-like state of mind for seven years in Daniel 4. Pride is a recurring theme in the New Testament churches of which Corinth was one of them. And really what we're going to see in this, I hope, is that the approach that we need to take is the approach that Jesus took, which is the approach of humility. First one. This is the third time I'll be coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So there is um, a, a quote from Jeronimo. Sometimes it's important that in church we, we recognize that people are hurting. And so we get alongside them. We love them deeply. We tend to those wounds. We tend to the thorns. And we seek to build and restore. And we comfort the afflicted. Sometimes though in church it is also necessary to afflict the comfortable. In Corinth, they were comfortable with sin. They didn't want to rock the boat and confront one another with all that kind of stuff because they wanted to show off how okay they were with all that stuff and how popular they wanted Christianity to be. It's what 1 Corinthians is all about. The incest, the division, the immorality, the false doctrine, the false teachers. And Paul's saying, look, that stuff, it's important. You've got to deal with it. You've got to speak up about it. I always find it funny though in Corinth. It's a church that struggled with legalism, but also over, overextending what it means to live in grace. Sometimes you think that legalists mean they want you to read really old traditional versions of the Bible and wear really traditional styles of clothes, have we bury on. That's what legalism looks like. Corinth is a case study in how legalism can look very differently. In a very liberal church, you can still have legalism where you have to look a certain way on the outside, but on the inside, you still tolerate sin and, you still are, you know, and you're still allowing that stuff to fester, whether it's in pride or in selfish motivations or whatever it happens to be. That's why Paul told Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort, with long-suffering and teaching. There's that balance. Now, obviously, there's a right way to preach the word and there's a wrong way to preach the word. But Paul wanted Timothy, that young preacher who really struggled leading that church in Ephesus, he really struggled. He says you've got to convince and rebuke and exhort, which really is, is if, if you were to put it in, in the right context, to lovingly teach. Lovingly correct, lovingly encourage. You've got to root it in the Word of God. Remember the context in Corinth. There was an old saying that not every man could afford a trip to Corinth. 
It wasn't because expenses, it was expensive. It was because the city was synonymous with sex and parties and gambling. It was the stag do capital. It's the kind of thing that, you know, you'd say, hey, let's go to Vegas for the weekend. Let's go to Corinth. You broke your heart. <laughs> let's drown your sorrows in Vegas. Let's go to Corinth. That's the atmosphere. That's the style of thing. So imagine a church being established there. It's a tough place to preach the gospel. It's a tough place to minister where many of the people who you're speaking to rely on the sin and rely on the corruption and rely on the, the, the filth of the city for their income. That's where they make their money. Imagine trying to disciple people then that grow up in that city and everything, all that stuff that's so dark seems as normal to them as us maybe coming here or us going to the petrol station. Yeah, I went to the, the, the temple prostitutes. Yeah, I mean, what of it? Doesn't everyone do that? Just normal. Maybe sin isn't really geographical anymore because concerning the stuff that gets pumped into houses over Wi-Fi and all the rest of it now, but Corinth kind of shared that, I suppose, now. It's hard to escape the old way of life. And so I'd encourage you to keep praying for those, for our young people, keep praying for, for those who are maybe only saved a few years. It's hard to escape temptation. It's hard to not be surrounded by, by stuff when it's everywhere, whenever that's the culture that we're in. Maybe that was part of the problem with the folks in Corinth. Maybe they just got defensive. It's okay, Paul saying, stop this and stop that. It's not just as easy as that whenever it's all around us. It's all fine when it's hypotheticals. It's harder when you're living it out. It's fine for him to talk tough in the letters. But wait, he say when he comes here and he sees how tough it is, he'll change his tune then. And so in these verses, it's like, Paul's starting to, it's like the pussycat's starting to show his teeth and goes, ah, I'm really a lion here. You say I'm weak. <laughs> I say I'm being humble. If I need to be bold, trust me, I'll not hold back. And so he says, okay, look, there's this quote from Deuteronomy in the end of verse one, which says, a single witness will not suffice against a person for any crime. <coughs> you need two or three witnesses to build a case. So a judge was never to deal with one man's word against another. Jesus used the same verse as his text in Matthew 18, which has become a bit of a catchphrase for church discipline. Everyone jumps on that structure. Oh, we're a Matthew 18 church. Oh, yes, that's how we do things. The problem is that most people don't really follow through Matthew 18 properly. They like the idea of it, but they don't often do it. I agree that it would be really good if we did it. Small problems in the church would be dealt with, and most of it wouldn't be registered. I would know about maybe only the 5% of the stuff that goes on. That's what I would love. I would love to only know about the about the, you know, the stuff that only get, really gets through all the other filters. Let, let, let's look at Matthew 18. 
If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you. And there's where Deuteronomy comes in. If your brother sins against you, go around the church and make sure everyone knows how they wronged you. Make sure that everyone is on your side and make sure that you get the sympathy that you deserve. That's not what the verse says. Yet you think it would be the way most Christians act. The command is to have the hard conversation with the person. It, what you said, what you did, I'll be honest, it hurt me. That, that, that thing that's going on, I think it could be sinful. Can we talk about it? Can we have a conversation? Because I'd love to know your motivation behind why you said what you said. Did you mean it? Did you just misspeak? Did I hear you wrong? Is it about perception? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about how you think you're coming across to how we see you coming across. Let's have that conversation. What, what, what happened back there, that's brought me to a place of sinfulness. So I need to talk to you about that. I need to confess. I need to, we need to talk. That's how Matthew 18 starts. It's never meant to be, did you hear what so-and-so did to me? That's not bearing witness, that's gossiping. Matthew 18 says, first have a chat with them alone, then take a witness. Not your friend, not the person who, told, who you told the story and they believe you, Take somebody who's actually seen it happen. Take someone who heard it. Take someone who knows what's been going on. And if that doesn't work, step three, take it to the church leadership. Those are the words of Jesus. They're not up for debate. They're not up for question. You gotta go to the first step first. Deal with it one-on-one. -on -one. Have the hard conversation. We don't like that first step. We want to skip over that and get on with the public crusade and let people know how hurt we are and how terrible it is that they did that and I'm not going to come back and I'm not going to, because that's outrageous and that's not right. Now, when Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians, when Deuteronomy men mentions it and when Jesus mentions it, Whenever you go down through this path of, okay, you have to confront sin. There's always going to be a voice. There's always going to be someone who turns around and says, okay, I see you're Matthew 18, but I raise you, Matthew 7. Ah, judge not, lest you be judged also. Mm, yes, oh no, you wouldn't be right to say anything. It wouldn't be right to call anyone into question. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, these verses are not trying to say that Christians are not allowed to have informed opinions. As if somehow we're not allowed to have the right to think things through with critical minds to discern right and wrong. Of course we are. Read on from that verse in Matthew and finish the thought that Jesus was making. Verse 4 how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a look in your own eye? Fair enough. 
fair enough, that would be silly. There'd be no point us here doing things that are worse and, and highlighting someone else. That would be silly. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do you see that? If there's something in your eye, then yes, you should deal with it before you start pointing fingers at other people. Don't just leave it there. Clean your eye and then help out the other person. It's a mandate. See clearly, be discerning, be wise. Don't just deal with things on face value, but perceive things thoroughly. Be discerning, be wise. Grow up. Now you put judge not the way some people like to throw it around beside the rest of what Jesus says and it falls way short. And don't do it now, but maybe later on, look up, read Matthew 23. It's not a great bedtime reading. I'll be honest, I'll tell you now before you do it. It's not a great bedtime reading. Matthew 23 is the seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and, and Jesus kind of lays it out. He, he's being very judgy. And he says, you doomed yourselves by puffing yourself up and you're producing no fruit. And he's calling people to see through them. See through the facade. See through, see through all the kind of puff and all the flamboyance and all the, the posturing. Look closely. These guys aren't bearing fruit. This is what Paul is doing. He's calling the Corinthians to action and to deal with things don't sit back thinking that it would be wrong to make a judgment call on these false teachers. Look through it. Be discerning. Don't just say, well, we'll have to be gracious. We'll have to allow them their chance. He says, no, be more discerning than that. Now, of course, we're not going to judge in the sense that we're going to condemn people and write them off and say, ah, just go to hell. That's not what we're doing here. What we're doing is we're discerning people by the fruit that they produce and we are responding to them accordingly. Now, Paul's going to go deeper when we get to verse 5. He'll say, so therefore examine yourself, judge yourself, look at the fruit that you are producing. But Paul's attitude here is not about judging so that you can condemn people. Rather, what he's doing is this is the reaction of a loving parent reminding his children to be slow to jump to conclusions. And just because someone tells you something doesn't mean it's automatically true. Pay attention. Not everyone's opinion carries equal weight. I, I always laugh because my... I, I have two younger sisters, okay? One of them. Uh, would be particularly gullible, which is a source of endless amount of fun for me. But um, the number of times growing up in my house where I heard my parents say, and if so-and-so told you to jump off a cliff, would you do that as well? Right, you know that line? 
if they told you to touch, put your hand on the flame, would you do that? Maybe, you know what I mean? It was this kind of constant thing. Paul's basically doing this, the theological version of that to the Corinthians. Listen, just because these guys speak well doesn't mean that it's going to bear fruit. Look at it more carefully. See through it. Don't listen to all the stuff that they're saying about me. Test it. Look at the fruit. Look deeper. Be more careful. I warned those who, who sinned before and all the others. I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking to me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. He's simply saying, I want to come to you the way Jesus came to us. Jesus came in humility and gentleness and love. That's how I want to come. So we need to deal with this stuff now. We're well into December now. And one of the great truths about the Christmas message is how God comes to us. It's the great truth about Christmas. And it's, it's just one that makes my heart sore. Our God is a descending God. He's not one who sits enthroned in heaven and says, okay, if you want to get here, you've got to build yourself up here. You've got to earn your right to get here. No, Christmas is about how God came and met with us. He came to be with us because he knew fine well we would never get to where he, he is without help. So he came to us. And he put on human flesh. He would stoop down to our level. He would step into our vulnerabilities as a baby, the dirt of a manger, the mess of our real lives. <coughs> and Paul says, with that same humility, with that same care and that same love and that same compassion, I want to come to you. I don't want to have to go through all this stuff. No, sorry. Verse 5. So examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Hmm. The easiest thing to do to make yourself feel better is to focus on everyone else's sins. Right? We all know this. I maybe shouldn't do that, but at least I'm not like them. I know we do this, but it's, it's fine, it's harmless. I mean, I'm not like those guys who do this. Fill in the blanks there, whatever it is. Because we all do it. So Paul turns the tables. Says, I've talked enough about the false teachers. I've talked enough about myself. What about you, church? Eh. Let's talk about you in detail. Let's examine you. Let's study you a little bit more closely. Are you really saved? I think of the weight of that question coming from the Apostle Paul. But you meet people like this all the time. You meet people like this all the time. I'm a Christian. Why? 
because I go to church. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm one of those born againers, but you know, I mean, I, you know, I had the water sprinkled on me whenever I was a kid in the church. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I vote DUP. I'm a, I'm a Christian. Listen, people out there, that's how they think. I know we're laughing, but that's how people think. Jesus says, no, it doesn't work. You must be born again. That's, that's it. The only way to gain heaven is a totally new life in Christ. So examine yourself and know for sure. Don't just hope. Don't just think, well, I, I figure, I reckon I, that what I did back then was enough. It's possible to know. In fact, it's essential that you do know. And I know you might think, well, Jeff, like, that's a wee bit arrogant to think like that. No, it's not. It's humility. It's humility to think like that. Because I know where I'm going. I know for a fact what's happening whenever I die. It's not arrogance. It's humility. Because I know that to have this assurance... I have had to acknowledge that I am useless and I am just a sinner and there's nothing that I can do to save myself. No amount of good works, no amount of church attendance, no amount of sermons will ever be enough. I am totally relying on the power of the resurrected Jesus in my life. Christ alone. I got nothing to offer. I got nothing to add. So I know where I stand, and it is not a place of arrogance. It is of the utmost humility, because I am saying I got nothing to offer here. And so, as we get to these closing verses, Paul is closing with strong words, but they are still driven by kindness and with concern for their well-being. Guys, make sure. Test your grounding. Stop worrying and judging me. Make sure you're okay. I'm good. Examine yourself. Do you remember the old illustration? Someone that posed the question, if Christianity was made illegal tomorrow, would there be enough evidence to convict you? says, well, I go to church. Well, that's circumstantial. says, well, my family are saved. Well, that's just hearsay. Well, I post Bible verses on Facebook. It's still not conclusive. If we are to test ourselves, if we are to examine ourselves, what, what's the pass mark? How do we know if we pass the test? What's required to come through? Thankfully, the Bible tells us. 1 John 2. By this we know him. Sorry, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 
No, Rich, you got to walk like Christ. You got to look like Him. You got to reflect Him in how we live and do life. Verse 9 Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves him, <coughs> excuse me, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You pass the test, not because you say you pass the test, but you pass the test because of the fruit that is produced by your life. Imagine I make my New Year's resolution to go running and I'm definitely going to have to do something, but let's, okay, let's pretend I'm completely committed to that idea, okay? <clears throat> so what I do is I, I go out on Boxing Day and I buy myself a really good book on running. Really good book on running. I read it twice. I underline parts of it. Um, I set up a Facebook account uh, dedicated to, to running and I post quotes from this book about running. I, I post pictures of new running shoes that are still in the box, uh, up on, and, and I get into great discussions with people about running techniques and running routes. And but it gets to March, and you say, Jeff, how's the running going? He says, well, I haven't actually done any running, but I'm really enjoying that book on running. I'm not a runner. Yet some people will buy a Bible and other Christian books and they will underline bits, memorize parts, post quotes online. They'll attend conferences and talk to other people about what the Bible says and what it would look like and how it would feel and how it should happen. But if they never actually do it, There are as much Christians as I am a runner. Francis Chan gave a really good example of it, and so forgive me, uh, I've used it before, I'm sure you know it as well, but his daughter comes to him and he says to her, look, listen, you need to go clean your room. So she knows better than to argue, and so she goes, comes back a couple of hours later and says, they tidy your room. Well, I memorized what you said. I mean, it's really powerful, the words that you said. Go and clean your room. Oh, that's good. In fact, um, I memorized what you had to say in the original Greek. And it's fascinating, just all the meanings of the word clean and room in the, in the original Greek. And that's powerful. In fact, there's a couple of friends and we're going to meet together. We're going to sing songs about cleaning our room. And we're going to study what it would look like if we can mobilize people to clean rooms all over the world. Oh, what that would look like. That would be amazing. All oh, these clean rooms. Of course, that's not going to work. That wasn't what her father asked her to do. Go and clean your room. So why do we think that all this kind of thinking works with Jesus? 
Jesus would look at people and say, why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you to do? Why would you call me Lord if you're not going to do what I tell you to do? See, these words that we give with our actions behind it were never acceptable to Jesus. Church, listen, take the guesswork out of salvation. Jesus said, we will know you by the fruit that you produce. I will know you by your faithfulness to the word. None of this really frustrating conversation that happens when someone clearly says, you know, I don't go to church, I'm not interested, uh, I don't pray, I don't read, I don't really know if there's a God. And then there's Christians behind saying, ah, I think deep down he's really saved. Sorry, no. That's not how it works. By their fruit, you will know them. Examine, test, see. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to fail. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Don't let false teachers pull you away from what's true. Look at the fruit that people are producing and be careful and be critical of the fruit that you are producing in your own life. Verse 8 is a wonderful verse. Basically, he's saying that just because someone doesn't feel like it's true doesn't change the fact that it is true. You, you meet people like that again, and maybe there's someone like that here tonight. So say, oh, Jeff, I don't believe in God. So? <laughs> doesn't change the fact that God is very much real and we have to give an account before him whenever we die. You say, well, no, but Jeff, you don't understand. I said, I don't think he's really there. doesn't change anything. You're still going to have to do it because he's there. He's real. It's the truth. And Paul knew this, remember. I mean, he started off, off in Scripture. He was chasing down Christians. He was attacking them. He didn't believe in the gospel, this new Christianity, until he met Jesus. He knows full well you can't deny the truth very long. No, you can ignore it, maybe even for a lifetime. Some people do ignore it for a lifetime, but you can't change the truth. Verse 9, for we are glad then we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. <coughs> your restoration, some Bible versions might say, and scripture might say that we pray that you would be made complete. It's about being whole, it's about growing into maturity. As Christians, we should always be growing. I hope that as a Christian, you are more like Christ than what you were this time last year. I hope that if you're a Christian, you're more like him than what you were this time six months ago, a month ago. I hope you're more like him than a week ago. Now, it may be hard to tell, okay? It's like saying, well, you know, how, how, taller, you know, how much taller does a child get in a week? All right, you don't see it. And sort of maybe those small installments, but you see it over time. 
You see it over the space of a year. And as Christians, we should always be growing in that ongoing war of restoration, that work of restoration from the marks of sin of our life into the fuller, more complete image of God. It should always be happening. We should never settle. We should never think, well, I'm comfortable with where I am. I'm not going to study more. I'm not going to bring anything more before God and say, okay, uh, we don't need to work on this. We don't, I've made it. With my, my two girls, I, I love every stage of their development. Uh, all the different stages are different, uh, but I love each the unique part of different stages. You know, but there's always someone who says, oh, newborns, you'll be up all night. Because now, well, we're, it was okay. I mean, we had a few rough nights, we had a few, but it was okay. Oh, well, wait until they're two. Oh, the terrible twos. Oh, that's a nightmare. Well, I mean, they're kids. I mean, they lack the words to maybe express themselves, but they're okay. Oh, well, you've never had it until they're five and they're having a tantrum in Tesco's. Oh, that's even worse than when they're two. Well, no, sometimes, but I mean, they learn quickly enough. Well, wait until they're teens and they're having a tantrum and it's a car and it's a phone and it's a, oh, that's the worst one. Yeah, I say, right, okay, jeepers, oh. Each stage is wonderful. Each stage has its challenges. Each stage reflects a new challenge in growing up, maturing, growing. Paul wants the Corinthian church to keep growing and maturing, to be made complete and fully restored. Each stage of development is going to bring different challenges. Maybe the challenges that you're facing now as an adult are different from the challenges that you were facing whenever you were younger. Or maybe your, your kids are growing up, or they're still there, or they're a different age or stage, or you've got maybe a uh, different element of independence than what you used to have, and, and you're trying to find that balance, and it's... It all has its own difficulties. But we should always be striving towards Christ. And so finally, brothers rejoice. Aim for restoration. Aim for that completeness. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And that's 2 Corinthians, folks. It's a wonderful summary, though, those verses, isn't it? Comfort one another. We get that from chapter 1. Agree with one another. Again, not that uniformity that the legalists were wanting, where everything had to be exactly the same. But what he means is unity. Be for one another, not against one another. Seek to build each other up. Be together in what you're trying to do, not factions and cliques and wee small groups. And live in peace so that you might know the peace of God in your life. Now, I will throw in Romans 15 there at that point as well, which says, 
that as far as it is possible with you, live in peace with everyone. And I'm thankful for that verse because sometimes it is hard and it's not always possible with some people. They always want to fight. They always want to prove you wrong and prove themselves right. They always want to nitpick. But the key here for a church to grow is to be sure that you're not the one who's being the irritant, that you're not the one who's nitpicking, you're not the one who's always uh, sort of tearing people down and, and causing wee divisions and causing the div- But you're someone who is building bridges, who's building people up, who's drawing people in, drawing people in to the conversation. And it's the easiest thing in the world to say, well, cliques, that's a young people thing. The young people cause cliques. No, happens in every stage. It happens in every group and every dynamic can happen. If there's someone who feels that they can't come sit and sit down and join you because it's too intimidating, you might might need to pay attention because you might just be part of a clique. Happens to anyone. Can happen whether you're a pensioner, it can happen whether you are a teenager, it doesn't matter. Build bridges, open doors, and greet each other with a holy kiss. Now, I would have done that tonight on your way out, but with my throat, I just thought it wouldn't be right. <laughs> the emphasis here is on the holiness, not on the kissing, okay? That, that was just the customary ancient Middle Eastern way of greeting each other. In the same way that we would give each other a solid handshake or something like that. The idea is, and I, and I, okay, I know that maybe, you know, AAC, we are a hugging church. We do a lot of hugging at the church and some people really don't like all the hugs. It's like, they're touching me again. Why would they please stop touching me? but it is good to express closeness and intimacy because of a shared work that Christ has done on us. But what Paul is saying here is make sure you give warm welcomes, authentic welcomes. When you talk to someone, don't let the conversation just be superficial, but really engage. Don't just have the conversation through gritted teeth but have unity and have peace and have it authentically. That's a church that's got its eyes lifted up and looking at Christ. That's Paul's final message to the church in Corinth. You can do all these things. You can look the part on the outside. But look deeper. Look deeper at the people who are going to be leading you and teaching you. Look deeper at the people who you allow to influence you. Look deeper into yourself. Test your motives in, in, in how you give, in how you talk, and how you worship. Make sure you're authentic with people. That the love that you have for people, that you actually genuinely do care. I think that would really transform so many of our relationships.
not so much with a holy kiss, but that real, authentic, genuine, warm greeting. Seek and make the best for each other. Let's pray.